continuing, we are, we are in our study through, the, uh, through God's story. All the way through the line, we started in Genesis and we've been connecting the dots and how it is just one storyline from start to finish. We're in the book of Samuel, we're in the center of 1 Samuel, we're going to 2 Samuel. And just like I said last week, those that weren't here, um, we divided the books, 1 and 2 Samuel, but they're really only one book. It's, it's one book. Somewhere along the way, it got divided, maybe to fit on a scroll, some practical reason it got, it got cut into. But it's, it's one storyline. Um, and so we're at the place of the story. Last week, we left off with David and Goliath, and we looked at God, the gospel and David and Goliath. And, and so David has been anointed king. God had sent a prophet Samuel and said, you shall be the king of Israel. You will have a throne here. He was about 15 years old or so when they told him that. And then after that, he goes and he slays uh, this giant representative of the Philistine, this serpent. And so you would think, well, he's got it in his head. He's king. So Saul, get out of the way. But the Lord didn't do it that way. He's got a way that's different than our way, doesn't he? Like things like, hey, yeah, this, okay, I'm king. Let's do it. Look, I, I, God threw me, slaughtered this, and so I've got God on my side. What more do we need? Um, so God went to Saul, and he, and he let him know what was coming also, like he did with David. He, he gave him his termination notice. You know, let him know you've got this much notice. You're on, you're on your severance package at this time. And uh, God gave David a promotion. You're going to be the king, but... This is going to be a lot of years before this is reality. God spoke the word. He said, David, this is your destiny. Um, but what he didn't say to David is it's going to be about 15 years before you realize it. And in that time, we're going to have to forge you in to be the king that you need to be. And so David, after his Goliath thing, a song is written that becomes a hit number one tune, apparently, in the day. Everyone's singing it, and the song uh, elevates David and diminuates, reduces Saul. Saul killed his thousands, and David killed his tens of thousands. And, you know, guess who didn't like that song? Yeah, Saul. <laughs> he didn't like it too much. So, like a real disrespect. And so he went into a jealous rage. That's where our story picks up today. He He's in a jealous rage. He's intimidated. Now, I want you to keep in mind here that in this storyline, Saul was put in place by God. Saul was anointed with the Holy Spirit. Saul had some victory because of God in him, but Saul got off track. And there's an intention behind this, as we'll see later. And so it just, just to set our scene, I want to read it to you in 1 Samuel 18, 29, and it says, this way it says, Saul became still more afraid of him, meaning David, and he remained his enemy the rest of his days. While he's serving out his notice, he is determined to be the enemy of David. And so at one point early in this story, David is in the palace of King Saul. He's working in the palace Saul looks at him with such bitterness and anger. And I want you to keep in mind that one of the, the benefits that David got from destroying this Philistine Goliath uh, was that he got the daughter of the king. So he got the royal bride. And so that's his son-in-law. And 
while they're sitting around, imagine yourself at your in-law's house and your father-in-law takes a knife and he flings it at you with the intention to kill you. Saul took a spear and he heaved it at David and missed them, of course, because David is the seed that was promised. David then knows that he's got to escape the palace. He's got his wife, uh, Michael or Michael, who helps him. And this gets a picture of what's going on in the palace household. This man that God had called and anointed to be King Saul, uh, his daughter takes this idol. So they have idols in the palace that they're worshiping, not the God of all Yahweh. They take an idol and they put it in the bed of David to make it look like David is at home asleep while David sneaks out and escapes. Um, and Saul is on his pursuit. He's on the run. Innocent David tries to make sense of this injustice. Like, why is he doing it? I've done nothing to him. I, I killed his arch enemy. The Philistines are petrified. God got glorified. Why me? You ever felt like that? Like, this is so unfair. And he goes to Jonathan, who is Saul's son, his best friend, his BFF. Then David fled from Noahith in 1 Samuel 20, verse 1. He fled from Noahith at Ramah, and he went to Jonathan and asked, What have I done? What is my crime? How have I wronged your father that he has tried to kill me? And then Saul, now consumed with evil, is now mad at his son for having uh, this friendship relationship and helping David as he perceived it. And one day they're sitting at the table and Saul attempts to kill his son the same way he did David. And he, he is unsuccessful. Like, how is this possible? This is so unfair. How do we do it? I was reading this morning and I just happened in Romans chapter one. And I think this explains a lot of what's going on in our culture today what you're seeing out there, the things that you're looking at and listening to and say, this is so unfair. How can they not see it? How can people be so dense, so wicked? And Paul addresses that by inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Romans 1, verse 21, 22. He says, for although they knew God, Saul knew God, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. They didn't make him look good. They weren't about him, God being lifted up. They were all about themselves being lifted up and they failed to thank him for anything. It was all they're doing. But their thinking became futile. As a result of that, their thinking became confused and useless and they just, they got stuck in their thoughts and nothing made sense. And their foolish hearts were darkened and their hearts started to, perceive things from a darkened heart. They couldn't see the way God sees the world. There was no moral screening in their mind anymore because they had rejected God for themselves, did not glorify him and did not give him thanks. And although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. The world is overrun with fools. Not judging, I've been a fool myself and at times, uh, revert to that stage. And so therefore, it says in verse 24 in Romans 1, therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts. He gave them over. That's what happened to Saul. This is the story 
And if you're wondering when you're watching your news or reading your blog or whatever it is, wherever you're getting information, and you see something, he said, I can't believe it. Just go to Romans 1. You can believe it. This is the, this is the principle God has laid out. You reject me and you're thinking, you become basically stupid. You do. And you, and you have no moral perception or, or betting. So David needs a weapon because he's on the run and he, he goes to one of the priests. And, and you ever remember the story of David and Goliath? The way that David cut off the head of Goliath was how? He took the sword from the Goliath's sheath, this big, beautiful iron sword, huge. And he takes it and he puts it in his tent when he leaves. And where did that sword end up? I don't know. This is just such a coincidence. He goes to the priest and he says, I, I, I need a sword. And the priest replied, the sword of Goliath, this is, we're in 1 Samuel 21, the sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Allah, is here. The sword's here. It is wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you want it, take it. There is no sword here but that one. And David said, there is none like it. Give it to me. In other words, I will take the sword that the enemy meant for evil, and I will use it for God's good. He just flipped it around. God works that way, by the way. So a priest helped David while on the run, and one of the, another priest helped him, and the word got back to Saul that the priest was helping David. He was so enraged and jealousy that he, that he set a hit on God's man. This is the holy priesthood set by God who intermediates on behalf of the people. And he has him killed, but he doesn't just have the priest killed. This is showing the heart, how, how hard his heart had become, how futile his thinking had become. It says this in 1 Samuel 22, 18 and 19. And then the king ordered Doeg. You turn and strike the priest. You, you kill him. You kill not just the priest, plural, all of them. So Doeg the Edomite, which Edomite may sound familiar, or Herod the Edomite, Herod the serpent that God will use in the future, the Edomite, turned and struck them down. That day he killed 85 men who wore the linen ephod. He also put to the sword Nob, the town of the priests, with its men and women, its children and infants, and its cattle, donkeys, and sheep. You don't have to think too hard to think where we've seen that just recently, do you? Hamas, Israel a hardened heart, darkened eyes, and a futile thought. God instructs David still, even though he's not the king and he's a young man and he's on the run, God still is speaking to him like he is the king. He talks to him in his destiny. And he says, David, I need you to do something. I need you to go save these people from the Philistines, this, this town of Calah. And so David and his men went to Calah. They fought the Philistines and carried off their livestock. He inflicted heavy losses on the Philistines and saved the people of Calah. And you know how they rewarded him? David stays among the people thinking, I've got friends now. Now I've got friends. I have saved these people. And uh, you know what they did in return? David went to God and he sought the Lord. He said, Lord, I'll read it to you. David asked again, will the citizens of Calah surrender me and my men to Saul? And the Lord said, they will. Yeah, they will. They're going to they're gonna turn you over and throw you under the proverbial big bus. Now imagine this. 
in David, he's got every right to be upset. He has every right to be offended. He has every right to say, I hope they kill you. He has every right to go to the Philistines and say, you know what? I'm gone. Why don't you take them? But he didn't. His character is incredible. We see his character. We can learn a lot from this in David's character. David, in his run, in this span of around 14, 15 years, he's He's hiding out in a cave as Saul and his army, which is far greater than David's army, is after him. He's in a place called En Gedi. Saul just happens to go by the cave that David is at, obviously a very big one. Him and his men are way back in the far end, and a lot of you know the story. Saul goes in to relieve himself in the cave, and, and, and David's men are going, <laughs> this enemy of yours, David, he is in your hands. Just take him out, for goodness sake. We're tired of running. And so they said to him in 1 Samuel 24, 4, the men said to David, this is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands and for you to deal with as you wish. Didn't God say that to you, David? And David, because his mind was not futile and his heart was not darkened, David did creep up for a moment in temptation unnoticed and he cut a piece of the robe without Saul knowing it. He, he cut a piece off. He could have killed him. But he is so stricken in his conscience. The scripture says he was conscience stricken. He felt so guilty about what he had done, just cutting the robe. He didn't even kill him. He just took a piece of his robe. And Saul leaves, and he takes his men, and when he's at a safe enough distance, David says, I, I've got to get this. I've got to reconcile with this guy. Man, why is he hate me? I've done nothing wrong to him. And so he tries to reason with a person with a futile mind and a darkened heart. Very hard to do, by the way. It says this, Then David went out of the cave, and he called out to Saul, My lord, the king! When Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. And he said to Saul, Why do you listen when men say David is bent on harming you? This day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. As he's holding up the cloth of his robe, and they, Saul is looking back going, Oh, man, Shazam. I'm sure he said worse than that. My man urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lay my hand on the Lord because he is the Lord's anointed. What's he saying? He said, I can't touch what God has put in place. That is God. If, if God wants to take him out, then let him do it. I dare not do it. God had anointed him. It is not my place. Remember, he is tired He's hungry. His men are distressed. Morale is potentially very bad. He's on the run. He could have ended it right there. He says, I will not touch it. Makes a case for his innocence with Saul. Saul feels a little bit bad. He says, eh, but he's not repentant. David runs some more. And his men are hungry and they're thirsty and they run into this, this guy that has this big estate who's got food that can help them. He's got a well for water. And David appeals to him. His name is Nabal. And he says, Nabal, can, can you help me? Can you help a brother out? Just give me, just give me a little bit. And Nabal says, uh, no, I'm not help. Probably afraid of what Saul might do to him. Probably out of fear. Who knows? Maybe selfishness. The thing is that his wife, Nabal's wife, Abigail, had a lot more sense. She's going, she's saying, this is the king's, this is the anointed of God. I remember what he did 
in slaying the serpent Philistine. And she sneaks without her husband knowing it, and she takes food and drink, and she takes it to David and the men. But I want to see, by David taking his hands off the situation and backing away and saying, God, this is up to you, I want you to see what God did. So God says this in 1 Samuel 24, 38. God, by his spirit through the narrator, says these words. About 10 days later, 10 days after this incident of Nabal, the Lord struck Nabal and he died. Who got the revenge? It wasn't man. David could have had it, but he gave it to God. Like there's situations in my life where I just want to have, I, don't you want to just sometimes just get retribution? Don't you sit there in your mind and our psycho brains and just start fantasizing about how we're going to destroy somebody for hurting us? Don't you do that? Is it only me? No, you know you do. So, I mean, here's a, I mean, this is a side note. It's not a big part of the story, but <laughs> David's so impressed by Abigail, he sends her a proposal and they get married. By the way, he takes the wife. Not only God takes him out, but he gets the woman. And so David, you think at this point, he's really worn out. I don't know how many years have passed then. The scripture doesn't tell us. But he's got a second opportunity to take Saul down. He's just, they're out and about and roaming around and all of a sudden they come upon this campsite at night and Saul and his men are sleeping and, and they just walk right into Saul's camp. I mean, come on. At this moment, if you're David, aren't you thinking like, you know, God, I, I resisted the first time, but surely you sent me a second time so that I could destroy this guy. Surely this is your will. But because his mind is not futile in thinking and because his heart is not darkened, he has the heart after God's heart. And so one of David's men in 1 Samuel 26 says this to David. He says, today, today, hey, so David, today, now, are you hearing me? Today God has delivered your enemy into your hands. Now let me pin him to the ground with one thrust of the spear. I won't have to strike him twice. Very tempting. But David said to Abishai, Don't destroy him. Who can lay a hand on the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? As surely as the Lord lives, he said, the Lord himself will strike him. And or his time will come and he will die or he will be in battle and perish. He says, I don't know how it's going to be, but I know the Lord is going to have the last word. So very, this is character beyond character. I know in my own heart, I need that character. I want to be more like that in my heart for him. We need to be more like that in our heart where it's not about retribution and having our way and in America in particular, North America in general, we, we're used to having our way. We can buy our way into things. We can get our way. There's still a system of justice. And, and we like to have things, especially Americans. We, lo we love to have our freedoms and independence, and no one tells us what to do. We exact revenge. We use our justice system, sometimes inappropriately. And David is in a day where he doesn't use any of it. He says, I, my God is still God, Yahweh. So David lets Saul know that he spared his life, hoping still to, to reason with him. And finally, Saul is at the end of his life. Saul is at the end of his life. And finally, he says to David, may you be blessed, David, my son. You will do great things and surely triumph. Finally, in his last, 
And then this tragic story of Saul who never does repent that we know of. He takes his own life. And even David mourns for the death of his enemy. He legitimately mourns for him. Can you imagine someone that is after you, tried to destroy you your whole life, and they die and you hear about it. Instead of cheering and having a party, you go into sorrow and tears. That's the heart of God. He even wrote an uplifting song about Saul. What mercy. I mean, how many exes has Taylor Swift has? I think she writes a nasty song about every single ex that ever had. I don't know what she's going to say about Travis Kelsey, but I'm waiting to hear it. I don't know. I'm waiting to hear it. I thought I got a chief, but I only got a squaw. So, something bad, you know. I, I don't know. Yeah, those that understand what he does, you'll get. Sorry, Taylor. Don't send your Swifties on me. David was in great distress uh, as Saul's men sought to, to kill him. He says that in his word in 1 Samuel 30 as we come to the end of this book. He said, David was greatly distressed because the men were talking of stoning him. Saul is dead. Saul's men are out to go after him. They're, they're going to take David down. Saul's their guy, not David. Each one was bitter in spirit because of his sons and daughters, but David found strength in the Lord his God. He had to reach down deep and say, God, I trust you. They're out to kill me. By the way, it was customary that when a new king is set in, that you go and take out the old king's family so that it has no legacy. You take out the king, you take out all of his descendants so that to ensure that your kingdom is never challenged again. And so to get there first, I'm sure that Saul's family said, before he gets us, we get you. And he went after David. David is anointed king over Judah first, the northern kingdom, at age 30. I don't, yeah, who else was anointed at age 30? Hmm. Joab kills Abner, whom David loved and respected. He mourned for him. The family of Saul goes to war with David. And, and the son of Jonathan, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, this little storyline is dropped in this long story. It's just dropped in, this little mention. The narrator says, I, I'm, I'm going to introduce a character into this story that's going to be significant later. And they talk about this son of Jonathan and just mentions this guy named Mephibosheth. He's just five years old and he's got to flee for his life from the, from the palace and his nurse picks him up and they're running and while they're running, she drops him and he becomes crippled in both legs for his whole life. He's lame in both legs and just mentioned it and just leaves it there. Picks up the story later. At this moment, David is, remember I said to David and Goliath that, he, that Jerusalem was not the kingdom belonging to Israel, it belonged to the enemy of Israel. So David went and he conquered Israel and Jerusalem and he took Jerusalem over because he would establish that as his place of throne. The capital of Israel would be there. And right outside the city walls, just remember, the skull of Goliath is buried. It'll have significance later in history. David is now king, not over just Judah of Israel. He's king over Judah about six and a half years, and now he's, he's got this whole kingdom. He has united the whole kingdom as one, one people, capital, puts a capital in Jerusalem, um, he became more powerful, the scripture says, and he became more and more powerful because the Lord Almighty was with him. I want that about my life. God is with him. 
Then David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people, Israel. What humility. Saul said, I have made myself king and I have become great and I have established myself. And David said, God has put me in this place and he has established me. You see the contrast of that heart. David, excited, gets the ark. He's going to move the ark into the, to the new capital, to Jerusalem, where he has his throne. He's bringing place of God's presence in there. He's rejoicing. He's dancing, unclothed. He's, 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 he's having a party over the presence of God being established in this new capital and his people being united around one God. And then he gets this promise. This is the whole storyline pivots here, by the way. This key pivot place in this story. It's in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 10. God says to David about the future. Here's what the future looks like, David, for you and for your offspring. And I will provide a place for my people Israel. I'm going to have a, a place for my people Israel. And I will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning. This is looking towards the Messiah. God promised to raise up a son. He told him about David's son. David offers to build God a house of his own, a temple, and he says, no, your son will do that. And then he gets this prophecy, which is very key, and we need to go back to Genesis here, 3.15, that God, when he placed the curse on the serpent, on Satan, that there would be a day come when the offspring, the seed of the woman, will crush the head of the serpent. We saw that emblematically in Goliath last week. And we see it here that God is saying, I am bringing the Messiah. And he said that this way beautifully in 2 Samuel 9.1. Is there any, I'm sorry, in uh, 2 Samuel 7.10, your house, David, and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. He's not talking about an earthly king. He's talking about a throne established forever. The, the Jewish scholars, rabbis, the Jewish people know this. This is the messianic verse. This is the promise. One day there shall be a throne in all of Israel. In Jerusalem, he shall reign. And so when Jesus comes back, everyone says, this is the fulfillment of the promise that God made to David, that the king has finally come to take his throne. And then suddenly the story in the, in the midst of this transition, and just to, this transition is important to understand. Up until this moment, we have Mosaic law, the Levitical law, do's and don'ts. You do this, God will do that. Do this, do this, do this, do that. A lot of do's. It was a law set out. But but there there was not a system for which people could be free and forgiven and have mercy and grace for their sin against the law. And so the temple would be that place where sacrifices would be brought in. And by faith, people will come. And by action, they will give their sacrifice the best of what they have. And in return, God will sprinkle blood upon the mercy seat and they will be emblematically covered over their sin. And he sets that scene up. He's introducing God's mercy and God's grace. And then all of a sudden, this character we saw just a little while back is all of a sudden shows up on the scene and it is intentionally placed right here in the storyline. Mercy and grace. 
We're back to the son of Jonathan, the grandson of Saul. David asked this question in 2 Samuel 9, 1, is, is there anyone out of the blue? He just asked, is there anyone still left in the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Is, is there anyone left that I could show said the mercy of God? And they said, yeah, there, there's a guy. Um, he lives out in this town. He's far away, the little village. He's in hiding. He's got a death sentence on his head. He, he's a descendant of Saul. He's going to be taken out. He, he just wants to have his life. And by the way, he's still crippled in both feet. He can't walk on his own. And Saul says, bring him here to me. Now, I just want you to imagine for a moment that when the palace guards show up at Mephibosheth's house, the fear that overtook him when he thought, I am defenseless against them. There's no way that I could live. They said, the king wants to have an audience with you. They don't know why. And here's the storyline, 2 Samuel 9, 6-8. When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. David said, Mephibosheth, at your service, sir. David replied, don't be afraid, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan, and I will restore you to all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. The man has a death warrant on his life. He is totally helpless to supply his own needs. He's living in a far remote place, probably hoping never to be found and to be caught. He is brought before the king expecting death and what he thought that he deserved by custom. And yet the king goes to him and says, no, Mephibosheth, you shall live in my palace and you will eat at my table. Undeserving. He didn't ask for his resume. He wouldn't be a fighting man. There was no service that Mephibosheth could do in the palace. He brought nothing, so to speak, to the table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, what, what is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? David gave him everything that belonged to his grandfather Saul and a room in the palace. And when I read that, I can't help but think what Jesus said about us to us. In my house are many mansions and I go to prepare a place for you. And I will come and get you so that you will be with me undeserving, born with a death warrant over your head, at enmity with God. And I love the, how this ends. Verse 11, 2 Samuel 9, so Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Just imagine, he's, he's living like one of the, he's undeserving. The sons are looking and go, who is he? He has no bloodline. He's a, he's a descendant of Saul. He should be dead. He brings nothing to the party. And the, these final words just, they're emotional, they're dramatic. It says, Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah. All the members of Ziba's household were servants of Mephibosheth. All these servants of David are now serving Mephibosheth. He's got servants. And Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table and he was lame in both feet. 
God restored the condemned. One day you and I will live in the presence of God, those that are his, and we will be in his palace totally undeserving. Jesus said that many times in in Luke. He said, blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. You are the sons and daughters. He said also, people will come from east and west, north and south, and will take their place at the feast in the kingdom of God. Jesus said, so that you may eat and drink at the table in my kingdom. He said in Revelation, here I am, I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. And we will eat at the kingdom table for eternity. Amazing story. But it gets really ugly here. You think, oh, we can, if we just end it here, it'd be wonderful. This is, let's just stop right here. Because David is at his prime He's winning. He still trusts God. And one day his, his whole troops go off the battle and the trajectory of this great king who maybe he's the one who is going to rule forever on the throne in Jerusalem. And God just wanted to make it clear that there was one better who's going to be coming. And so one day he's at the palace and he's looking out and he's, he sees this babe over across the way. She's a married woman. He says, you know, I want her and He seduces her, and she gets pregnant. Her husband is off in battle fighting on behalf of the king. His little cover-up didn't work, so he said, the only choice I have is to kill the guy, and so uh, he has Uzziah murdered. And then then it just gets worse from there. There's a a rape of a a sister, Tamar, who's a virgin, and raped by a brother. Then there's retribution and revenge. And then all of a sudden you have one of David's own sons, his own kids, turns against them and and decides that he's going to take the kingdom for himself and proclaims himself, I'm the king. Imagine that for a moment. Everything is going so well. And then we just make one little bad decision and it just collapses. It's all going right. I'll give you some irony here. His name was Absalom. He tried to overthrow Father's throne. I, I would just suggest for a moment that Absalom here is representing, just like Goliath did, the seed of the serpent. He is coming against God's anointed, the king. I say that because of the narrator decides to put this little story in here about how Absalom died. I just call it irony. You call it whatever you want. It's just ironic. 2 Samuel 18, 9, listen to how Absalom died. Then Absalom met the servants of David. Absalom rode on a mule. Who else rode on a donkey? The mule went under the thick boughs of great terebinth tree, and his head caught in the terebinth. So he was left hanging between heaven and earth, and the mule which was under him went on. He came in a self-anointed king riding in on the back of a mule. And he ended up being hung on a tree. Scripture says all that are hung on a tree are cursed. His death has no avail. It is only God's irony at this moment and how he went. David is the seed of the woman versus the seed of the serpent. God took out 
In the same way Judas had sons, he chose 12 sons, and one of his sons decided to divide his kingdom, and he sold out. And he too hung himself death on a tree. Just leave you with these words, going back and thinking through this storyline that, like Saul, a lot of us, we know him. We know him. We know about him. I hear that all the time, and I've done it myself. Yeah, I know God, but not really applying our knowledge of him. I know him, but I, do I thank him for everything, even the horrible stuff, even when things are really going bad? Am I able to get out a thank you for your plan, God? Can I, like David, see his sovereignty in it, in his hand? Can I, can I take my life every day and ask, God, how can I make you look good today? How can I show who you are today? How can I glorify you today? And they neither glorified him or thanked him, and their minds became futile, and their hard hearts became darkened. And when it's bad, can I resist the temptation to want to get retribution? Can, can I have the heart of God that says, I will not take that into my own hands? Can I trust him? Do I have to have control of this? Or can I, can I believe by faith in what I can't see and that, God, you've got control of this. You, you can take care of that one or that thing, that circumstance. You can do that. I'm going to trust you, so I'm going to do what I normally don't do. I'm just going to back away. I'm going to see what you do. And then finally, can you, can you show, can me and I, you and I show grace and mercy to those who don't deserve it? the way God has showed it to us, the way that David showed them Mephibosheth and the way that when he went to that cross and he took, and he was the curse for us and all sin, he became sin on our behalf. He suffered the curse of God and all took all the wrath that you and I deserved. That because we have been shown such great mercy, are we not able to give that same mercy and kindness back to other people who wrong us? Whether they're close to us or they're out in public life, whether it's injustices around the world, can we step back and, and endeavor to love them the way God loved them? Not agree, not endorse, not cosign, but can we love them? Not getting retribution, not living anger. I just want to, closing with that, and I just think those are things to think on as we look at this storyline that God has done wonderfully here. And, and tying together it, there's going to be a greater king. That's, what he's, that's the whole point in First, Second Samuel. There will be a king greater than these. You're going to go through kings. Next week, you'll be introduced to this guy named Solomon, who started off so good but ended tragically. Because God is preparing your heart to say, you know what? Just what we sang, nothing else. Nothing else. No one else. No one else will do. Only him only he can satisfy the inner longing of my heart. Not her, not him, not it. Only him. He is all that I need. Nothing else, nothing else, nothing else will do.